0: My name is Zach. I'm one of the pastors here at New Hope, and uh, this is our last week talking through the story of Joseph, and uh, it has been a long journey, but uh, to recap, as I have, I think every time I've stood up here on this series, um, this is a really long series, and I don't feel that it's fair for anybody that may have missed something to just be like, here, we're airdropping you into the story, so I'm going to summarize, okay? Uh, up until this point, what has happened is Joseph has been put through the ringer. okay? Uh, story starts out, he's about 17 years old, he's kind of a jerk, and he is his dad's favorite son because he is the firstborn to his dad's favorite wife, okay? So he puts him kind of in charge of all his other brothers, and Joseph causes all sorts of trouble between his brothers and his dad, and he kind of brags about how he knows he's the best, right? And they get sick of it. And so they start plotting his murder, but then they decide that, no, that doesn't really do us much good. Let's sell him as a slave, because then at least we'll get some money out of it, and we won't have to cover up a murder. So it's actually more selfish than killing him, right? Like, it's pretty screwed up. They sell him into slavery. He is bought by an Egyptian man named Potiphar, and soon Potiphar sees that Joseph has God working in his life. And that he prospers in the things he does. And so Potiphar makes Joseph the second in command in his household. Okay, Now pretty soon, Potiphar's wife, she becomes attracted to Joseph. And she tries to sleep with him. But he denies her advances. He runs. And she, out of anger, tells Potiphar that he attempted to rape her. And so Joseph is thrown into jail for something he didn't do. All right, now he sits there for a while, and all of a sudden the warden sees him and realizes, wow, God is working in this man's life. And so he makes him the second in command of the prison. And soon he meets two people he meets the royal baker from Pharaoh's court, who has been thrown in prison, and he meets the cupbearer for Pharaoh, who has been thrown in prison. And they have these weird dreams. And God allows Joseph to interpret dreams. And so Joseph hears their dreams and he tells them, oh, here's what it means. Well, the baker's going to die. That's a bummer for the baker. And the cupbearer is going to be reinstated as the cupbearer. And Joseph just asks, look, when you go back, just remember me. And so the guy gets put back in as the royal cupbearer, and of course he forgets Joseph. And so Joseph is sitting in prison for two years, twiddling his thumbs. Then one night, Pharaoh has two dreams, two very weird dreams that turn out to just be one dream. But uh, he, he calls all of the like, smartest people from all over Egypt, the, the the astrologers and the wise men, right? None of them can make any sense of this dream. And all of a sudden, the cupbearer goes, oh yeah, that guy. And so he tells Pharaoh about this Jewish guy from prison that interpreted his dream. And it came true. So they bring him before Pharaoh. And Pharaoh tells Joseph his dream. And Joseph, through God, interprets it and says, there's going to be a famine there's going to be seven good years of plenty, but then there's going to be seven years of, of famine. And so you've got to store up as much food as you can right now because we've got to save people from starvation. You've got to find the right guy. And Pharaoh goes, I think you might be the right guy. You seem to be pretty good at stuff. Uh, God is working in your life, and you can interpret dreams. That's pretty cool. You be him. Not only that, you're going to be the second most powerful man in Egypt which means he is the second most powerful man in the world at that point in time. That's a big deal, okay? So then what happens? The famine comes. But it doesn't just hit uh, Egypt. It hits Joseph's family back home. And so Jacob, their dad, Israel, right? He's looking at his sons and he's going, hey, look, we're starving. Go get food. So he sends them off to Egypt. And who do they go see? but their old pal Joseph. But they don't know it's Joseph, because he's dressed like an Egyptian, he's wearing makeup like an Egyptian, and he's speaking Egyptian. Doesn't seem like Joseph. Plus, he's dead anyways, right? So, he messes with them, because that's what you do when your brothers sell you into slavery, and you finally get a moment for revenge, right? And so he starts kind of toying with them to see where their head's are. And he sends them back home. He finds out dad's still alive. Benjamin's alive, but he's back home. He says, go get my youngest brother. Or he doesn't say my youngest brother. He says, go get your youngest brother, Benjamin. Bring him back here. And so they go back. They leave Simeon behind as, as collateral. They go and they get their brother, Benjamin, even though dad doesn't want to let him go because now Benjamin's the favorite son because he's the other son of Rachel, right? And uh, he finally allows them to do it because it's the only way they're going to live. So they take him back. Joseph then gives them the food they want, gives them their brother back, gives them Simeon, sends them all on their way. But first, he has somebody slip his silver divining cup in Benjamin's pack, so it looks like he stole it. And he sends them on their way. And then he catches Benjamin stealing, right? Quote-unquote, stealing from him. And when he says that he's going to make a slave out of Benjamin for doing this, Judah... The brother that kind of led the whole assault. He's the one that wanted to sell him into slavery. He's kind of the mastermind behind this thing. He steps up and he says, no, don't don't make this boy a slave. Take me, I'll be your slave for life. Take me, do what you will with me, but let this boy go back to his father. And Joseph seeing this, it just cuts him to the core. And he breaks down crying, and he tells them that he's Joseph. And these guys are freaked out, right? Like, it's this big, huge moment. And he tells them to go get their dad and to come back here. And he gets the okay from Pharaoh. And they move the whole family back to live on the outskirts of Egypt. And Joseph's going to take care of them. That's where we left off last week. Now, some things happened between last week and what we're talking about today. So what happens is they move there. Jacob, or Israel, he is dying. He's old, right? And he lays his blessing upon his 12 sons. That's where we get the 12 tribes of Israel from, okay? You've ever heard that term? That this is it. It's these brothers. And then he dies. But before he died, he requested that Joseph bury him in Canaan, where he's originally from. So Joseph gets the okay from Pharaoh, and then he takes his dad's body back to bury it in Canaan, and he takes his whole household and a troop of Egyptians with him, right? And so that's where where we're picking up today. And so we're going to look at Genesis 50, uh, 14 through 21, and it says this, after burying Jacob, Joseph returned to Egypt with his brothers and all who had accompanied him to his father's burial. But now that their father was dead, Joseph's brothers became fearful. Now Joseph will show his anger and pay us back for all the wrong we did to him, they said. So they sent this message to Joseph. Uh, They make this up. This is not true. But they they forge a letter from dad, right? Right. They said, before your father died, he instructed us to say to you, please forgive your brothers for the great wrong they did to you, for their sin in treating you so cruelly. So we, the servants of the God of your father, beg you to forgive our sin. When Joseph received the message, he broke down and wept. Then his brothers came and threw themselves down before Joseph. They said, look, we're your slaves. But Joseph replied, don't be afraid of me. Am I God that I can punish you? You intended to harm me, but God intended it all for good. He brought me to this position so I could save the lives of many people. So no, don't be afraid. I will continue to take care of you and your children. So he reassured them by speaking kindly to them. That's it. That's the story. We're done. See you guys next week. Um, No, so... um, It's almost like Joseph is sitting there or maybe been sitting there for a long while looking back on this whole stretch of things, and he's put it all together. He sees it. He sees the bigger picture, and he summarizes it with what you meant for harm. You meant to harm me. You meant to do evil to me. What you meant for evil, God meant for good. God took that evil, he took all the bad, and he made good out of it. Joseph is looking back on he's been sold into slavery. And then he has this, you know, major downshift, then kind of gets kicked back up. Now he's the best guy in Potiphar's household. Oh, now he supposedly raped somebody. He's in prison. Now he's the second best guy in the prison. Then he helps these guys in the prison. Oh, please just remember me when you go back to the court. Oh, they forget him. He's stuck in prison. It's just these ups and these downs, and these ups and these downs, and these ups and these downs. But finally, he's instated as the second most powerful man in Egypt, and he is going to save everybody in the known world at that point in time of starvation. Beyond that, I talked about this a couple weeks ago, Jesus Christ is born out of the bloodline of Judah. Joseph's brother. Had Judah starved, we aren't sitting in church today. You see what I'm saying? This is a big deal. He saves everybody, including us in a way, right? We benefit from all of this, from what God has done through these people. That's huge. God takes evil intentions. God takes evil actions, and he can make good come out of the worst evil has to throw at him. It's amazing. So what do we do with that? How do we apply that today? Well, we've all been Joseph. Right? Have you ever been hated? Have you ever had wrong done to you? I have. Listen, evil isn't always just somebody did something terrible to you. You know, maybe it is. Maybe it's like, you know, they they look at you as an object or they look at you as a barrier standing in the way of their greatness. People have done that. People do that all the time. People are always plotting evil. They hurt us. They make us feel bad. They put us down. They use us. Things like that happen, but it's not always pointed like that. Sometimes evil's more subtly interwoven into things. Remember, we live in a fallen, broken world. That means all sickness, all death is the result of evil. But God can even take that evil. And make something good out of it. About a year ago, um, my mom found a mole on the back of her arm. And she didn't think a lot of it, but it started to hurt. And it hurt worse and worse. And eventually it started to bleed. And this was over the course of a month or two. And so she goes to the doctor and they take a biopsy. And they recognize it's melanoma. And that just opens up this like whole chain reaction of like, well, now we got to do blood tests and we got to do all these scans because we want to know how bad it is. They want to know, you know, what stage this cancer is developed to. They want to know, you know, has it spread anywhere? And so they're doing all these tests and blood work and it all comes back and they find, yeah, it's stage two melanoma and you have colon cancer. They're not connected. It didn't spread to colon cancer. You had colon cancer or or the start of colon cancer. And you have this melanoma. And so they go in, they cut the melanoma out of her arm. They have to cut down to the muscle tissue almost. And then they go in and they cut that section of her colon out. They put her on chemotherapy. They put her on immunotherapy. Where a year later, my mom is cancer free. She's off of her chemotherapy. She's still got a couple months left of immunotherapy, but it's preventative care. My mom is okay. And here's the deal. In the middle of that whole thing, I was very bothered. I lost my dad two years ago. A year later, I'm like, I'm losing my mom. Like, that's the first thought that I've got. And I don't know what to do with that. And then I look at my mom, and my mom's over here going, I'm so thankful God gave me melanoma. Because had I not had that melanoma, I would have never known that I had colon cancer. God gave me cancer to cure me of cancer. God can take the worst the world has to throw at you and make good out of it. That's who he is. That's what he does. He's that sovereign. He's that in control. He's playing 12-D chess. We're playing tic-tac-toe. I mean, that's a terrible example. But my point is, he's way, way, way more in control than we can even comprehend. But here's the deal. We don't just get to be Joseph. In fact, more often than not, we're not, Joseph. You know who we are? We're the brothers. Yeah. We've been raised in Disney culture. We've been raised in victim culture. Oh, no, you're the good guy. It's your story. You're, you're good. Your intentions, they, that's, that's all that matters is your intentions. You're good. We know you're good. All that, those other bad people, they're the bad people. You know, whatever. No. No, you're the bad people. We're the bad people. The Bible is a story about a bunch of bad guys and one good guy named Jesus. That's why we worship him. It's kind of a big deal. More often than not, we're the ones looking at other people and seeing them as objects or barriers to our greatness. Or we're putting people down. We're hating people. We're using people. We're thinking less of other people. And we're exalting ourselves. And we Love sin in some capacity. Even if it's just the sin, the old man, that dead man inside of us, that sinner inside of us, it's still in there somewhere. But God can even take that and use it. I'll tell you a little bit of my story, and let me say this. I know I've talked about my story before, and I don't like to talk about it super often, but the reason I'm doing this is because your testimony, and we've all got one, is the most powerful tool you have. It is your witness of God working in your life. You've seen it. It happened to you. Don't hide it. Talk about it. I'm a college dropout. I dropped out of Ball State my junior year. That's the third year, the year before you graduate, for those of you keeping track. Not exactly the best move. But I had a drinking problem. I won't say I was an alcoholic. I don't think I was. But I could have been had I kept down that road. For sure. Okay? And the thing was, the drugs I did, smoking weed, whatever, not really ever my thing. It was usually alcohol. But it was all for the means of the end of being accepted. I wanted to feel wanted. I wanted to feel desired. I wanted to be cool. I wanted people to like me. I wanted women. And I drank and I partied to get to that end, right? To th- get to that result. And so I am desperate and destroyed, and I leave college. And I know it was bad because my parents didn't push back, okay? That's like sign number one. You're on a bad spot. Um, but I leave college, and I do the most rational thing. I start a rock band. Um <laughs> And I go and I'm touring, and like we're playing like a hundred shows a year. And I don't know if you guys know this, but when you play in a rock band, you don't have to pay for drinks; they just give them to you. So now I'm drunk a hundred days out of the year. That's a third of the year, at least, right? Um, this is happening. And in the middle of all this, I'm, I'm I'm entertaining. I'm playing my shows. I'm I'm wasted all the time. And God wakes me up from a dead sleep one night, and we don't need to go into the details. But I'll summarize it as this. He pointed me back to Scripture, and he revealed my sin to me. And he said, this is breaking you. You're dying. You're going to die. You have to quit. And that night, I knew I was supposed to go tell other people about their sin, and I was supposed to go tell them that they have to turn from it, or they're going to die, and they have to turn to Jesus Christ. I knew that. And so for the next year, I didn't know what that looked like. And so I went and got a job in a kitchen, and I uh, started studying my Bible for like a year, and I started applying for church jobs. I found two. And I didn't know what I could possibly do in a church, but I figured, hey, minute, uh, I need to go do ministry. I should probably get in a church maybe, I guess. Um, so I'm looking for these jobs, and I'm like, I play music. I guess I could apply for that. And I find a worship leader position and an associate worship leader position. Two churches. I apply it, both of them. They both call me back. The first one that called me back, I hesitate to call a church. Um, but the second one was here. And Jason calls me up on the phone, and we have a long conversation. He's asking me, like, you know, what do you believe about God? What do you believe about Jesus? What is worship? Um, we have a really good conversation. And at the end of it, he says, do you have, like, video of you leading worship somewhere that you could send me? And I said, well, I've led worship in my church a couple of times, but I don't have video. Can I send you a music video? And so I sent him a music video. And that leads to a formal interview. I walk in wearing a a tie, and I'm dressed in like slacks and a dress shirt. And Dave Ward, the teaching pastor at the time, looked at me and said, you can lose that tie forever. And I said, you got it, so blame him for the way I dress. And um, they hired me. And so I started as an associate worship leader, uh, leader here. Um, over some time, I go back to school. I go to school for biblical studies. Um, I start working on my degree, degree, eventually complete my degree. During that time, Bob and Randy and Jason start apprenticing me and start pouring into me and start trying to teach me. And they eventually ordain me. And now I'm a pastor. And I'm standing here and I'm talking to you about Jesus, which is what he wanted me to do in the first place. And I took all my time and energy investing it into sinning my face off, drinking myself into an early grave, and I did it by playing my music and being entertaining and trying to stand up here and be cool. And God said, well, we're going to take those things you've been working on and we're just going to use them over here. He was working the whole time. I thought I was in control. I wasn't. He had a plan and I was somehow under this False idea of, of making my own calls, but he was using each thing I was doing for his good all along. He can take the worst you've got, and he can make good out of it. That's the point. He is sovereign. He is God. He's in control. That's what this whole story was about. Now I got one more example I want to give you because it's my favorite example of this idea. And I know I said it a year ago. I don't remember if I said it in this pulpit. I kind of think I did. But I know I did it. It stars day camp. But I'm going to say it anyway. So that's cool. I love C.S. Lewis. C.S. Lewis has a book called The Great Divorce. And that book is about a field trip from hell to heaven, essentially. All the people of hell gather on a bus if they want to go. And they go to heaven for a day. And they land on the outskirts of heaven. And all the people of heaven come down and they meet them at the edge. And basically, they try to talk these people into just leaving hell behind and coming to heaven. Because the whole point of the book is, you choose hell. You want hell if you are in hell. It's what you've chosen with your whole life. And so it's these conversations between the people of hell, defending why they'd rather have hell. Versus leave it behind for eternal life with Christ. And so they step off the bus. And when they step off the bus, they're like ghosts. They're like shades. They're not human anymore. They're like see-through. And when they step out onto the grass, the grass is so real in heaven, and they are so false from their sin, that when they step onto the grass, it pokes their feet and it hurts them. And it's heavy to walk, and it hurts to walk in heaven, because they're not made for it anymore. And... Throughout the story, you see all these people defending their position, but eventually, the last one, he steps off of the bus. And he's not even a a he anymore. He's an it. He's become this disgusting, smoky, shadowy thing that nobody even wants to look at. And it's like, the worse you look, the worse your sin is. And it never tells you what his sin is, but it's controlling his whole life. It's destroyed him, and an angel comes down and meets him, and the angel sees that there's a little chameleon sitting on the man's shoulder, and he's whispering in his ear, and it symbolizes his sin, the sin that he's been carrying on his back, and the angel looks at the man, and he says, can I take that from you? And he says, oh, oh no, I've just carried this around for so long, like I I don't know if I could ever leave him behind, and all of a sudden you can hear what that little lizard's whispering in his ear, and he's saying, you need me. You need me. You're not going to be able to live without me. Don't, don't hand me over to him. Like, you'll die without me. You can't go on without me. What's life even like without me? And the angel says, can I take him? Can I take him? I'll kill it. I'll kill it for you. And the man says, but it'll hurt. And the angel says, you're right. It's going to hurt. But can I have him? Can I have him? Let me take him. And the man is just like, he's so conflicted. And finally, through this debate between him and the angel, the man just like breaks down and finally says, please take it. And the angel takes it off of him and he breaks its back and he throws it on the ground. And immediately, all that shadow on the man just falls off of him. And there's this beautiful, more than man, man standing there. It's what man was always meant to be, Right? He's he's exactly who God created him to be. And he is just happy and smiling and vibrant. And he's in this perfect new body. And he looks down and that little chameleon on the ground starts contorting and, and, and breaking down. And all of a sudden from the remains of that stands this great white stallion. And the man gets on his stallion and he rides off through that grass that he could have never walked in. But he's riding, charging through it up the hill. Into the, into the city of God, to be with God and his people. And here's the point of that story. It doesn't matter what sin you have carried around, or what great evil you have done, or what great evil has been done to you. God can take the worst hell has to offer, and he will break it down, and he will kill it. He will destroy it. And from those remains, he will raise up something beautiful and great, And he will use you for his purposes. The whole question that I have to leave you with today is, do you recognize that? Can you stop like Joseph and look back on everything that's happened to you and say, I see it. I see what he's done. Because that's our testimony. We talk about going out and reaching the lost and telling people about Jesus. We do it by what we have seen in our own lives and in the lives of the people around us. And so I beg you, stop and just think today. Think about your life and all that God's done for you. All He's doing for you right now, He's not done with you. And just surrender your life to Him if you haven't. And if you have, go out and tell everybody. Thanks for tuning in to the New Hope Church podcast. If you would, do us a favor and like or subscribe on your favorite platform, we would really appreciate it. Also, if you happen to have any questions, feel free to reach out to us at questions at becomehope.com. Have a great week. And know that we are praying for you as you seek to be Jesus in every corner of your world.